The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Revealing the Neuropathology of Alzheimer's Disease Through Novel Fluid and Imaging Biomarkers, Ushering in a Precision Era of Diagnosis and Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash UHK 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome everybody to this symposium on revealing the neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease through fluid and imaging biomarkers. My co-chair, Dr. Jonathan Conthi, and I welcome you to this symposium. So thanks for coming. Um, I'd like to set the stage uh, by discussing kind of the, some of the general concepts that make imaging biomarkers and other biomarkers so important for Alzheimer's disease, and I think even more than previously. So one of the reasons early detection and accurate diagnosis is important is that it's just a growing healthcare burden, in large part because of aging populations. Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia globally, uh, accounting for about 60 to 70% of cases, uh, and this is rising. So currently there's an estimated 55 million people around the globe with Alzheimer's disease. By 2050, this is expected to be about 139 million. The graph on the right shows uh, growth in the United States, so the numbers are smaller, but the trend is the same. And this is obviously, uh, in addition to hardships to patients and families, a major economic issue, with current expenses in the U.S. alone being about $1.3 trillion for care of patients with Alzheimer's disease, expected to grow to over $2.8 million by 2030. Um, and another important thing to understand for Alzheimer's disease is by the time a patient presents with cognitive impairment and certainly dementia, a lot has already happened. So there's a preclinical stage of Alzheimer's disease where brain changes are occurring that we can detect with biomarkers, including imaging, uh, but they're not significant clinical symptoms present. So this is called preclinical Alzheimer's disease. As patients progress, they start having cognitive impairment, and often this is termed mild cognitive impairment when it first uh, arises. And these are memory and thinking problems that are greater than normal for a person of a given age and education level. But really important for MCI is that it doesn't interfere with independence or activities of daily living. So patients with MCI can often be quite functional. Um, and if someone presents with MCI, it's often difficult to tell at that initial presentation the etiology. And it's important because there's different prognoses, prognoses depending on the cause. Some patients will improve. Some patients will have stable MCI for years. And in other patients, this is the first clinical manifestation of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and then patients with Alzheimer's uh, pathology will progress to Alzheimer's dementia, which also is problems with memory and, and thinking, but now they're interfering with uh, independence and activities of daily living. And common presentations are memory deficits, word-finding difficulties, visuospatial uh, deficits. Um, so there are a number of gaps in current clinical practice around the detection and diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. There's a general consensus that early detection at, at the MCI stage is desirable. But in reality, very few patients outside of academic and research uh, studies are diagnosed with MCI. And even as patients develop dementia and are having trouble with their independence and activity of daily uh, living, when mild, uh, up to 40% are not detected by uh, primary care physicians who may be dealing with all sorts of other medical problems the patient has. And uh, the majority of patients 
who have Alzheimer's dementia are not uh, told that during their life. Um, so validated imaging and fluid biomarkers are available, and obviously we're going to be talking about those, but they're currently not used in the routine diagnosis of MCI or AD. Um, there's data showing this changes management in the majority of patients who have those studies, and, and Val will talk about this in the context of the IDEAS study. Um, so what, why should we detect uh, and diagnose AD early? Well, in general, uh, the proper diagnosis is sort of the foundation of much of medicine, so we can increase the specificity and certainty of diagnosis, particularly early on when it can be more difficult to make a diagnosis, and in patients who have co-pathologies co that could also explain cognitive changes. Uh, we can counsel patients and families as what to expect by knowing a patient's biomarker status. Uh, we can enable patients to participate in their own care planning. So if a patient presents with MCI but is pretty functional, but they have biomarkers that suggest they have AD and are going to develop dementia, they may uh, plan their finances and other aspects of their life much differently than someone who doesn't have AD biomarkers positivity. Uh, it allows patients to make lifestyle changes that can slow the progression of disease, puzzles, memory tasks, exercise. Um, and also, we can stage the AD pathophysiology, and we'll talk a lot about this throughout this presentation. Um, currently, we're, a lot of virtually all clinical trials for Alzheimer's therapeutics are using biomarkers to select patients and stratify patients, and we may see this in clinical practice in the not-too-distant future. There's also the potential to monitor response to therapies that target biomarkers, and we'll talk about this a bit as well. Where we'd like to get to is being able to identify patients prospectively uh, who would benefit from anti-Alzheimer's therapy before they have irreversible or continuing neurodegeneration. And that doesn't rely on biomarkers alone. Obviously, there need to be disease-modifying therapies that work and are available, but diagnosing patients early is probably one of the keys to having the best therapeutic outcome. So it's also important to understand in terms of AD biomarkers is that there's a temporal course. So in this uh, slide, you can see that biomarkers are becoming abnormal on the y-axis, and this is over time. And this, is, this highlights some of the key things that change in terms of biomarkers, but also you can think of this from a cognitive perspective, going from preclinical uh, Alzheimer's disease to mild cognitive impairment to actual dementia. So kind of takeaways from this slide, amyloid measured in biofluids or with PET become abnormal first, and this can precede uh, cognitive impairment by 10 years or more. So amyloid's one of the earliest markers we have, uh, but it doesn't correlate as well with cognition because it can become positive very early in the course of AD pathology. Uh, next, tau, either again in biofluids or with PET, becomes abnormal. Um, and this is much more tightly tied to cognitive impairment, and we'll, again, come back to this later in the talk. We won't talk a lot about FDG PET or MRI, although we'll touch on this a little bit with MRI, um, but these are measures of neuronal injury, and these also can become positive before frank cognitive impairment, but again are tightly tied to uh, near-future decline in cognition. And then finally, patients become cognitively impaired and can be diagnosed clinically. So recently, the National Institute on Aging and the Alzheimer's Association developed a research framework, uh, here's the publication, which describes a way to classify Alzheimer's disease based on biomarkers. And this is intended for a research framework, but I do think it is useful for 
putting biomarkers in a clinical context as well and may give a preview of what's to come. So ATN biomarkers uh, are named for A, amyloid, which can be measured in the CSF with amyloid PET or in the plasma. T for tau, CSF phosphorylated tau, tau PET or plasma tau, and then N, neurodegeneration or neuronal injury. And the reason N is in parentheses is because neurodegeneration is a common final pathway for neurodegenerative diseases. So in the context of Alzheimer's disease, it's not specific for Alzheimer's disease. And, and well, while amyloid and tau are not perfectly specific, they're much more tightly associated with the pathology and pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease. I'm not going to go through this entire table in detail, uh, but you can refer to it. On the left-hand side, we see the ATN profiles, and uh, in the columns, we see the cognitive stage. And so in terms of classifying an individual based on ATN biomarkers, you need to obviously know the biomarkers, but you also need to know the patient's cognitive status in order to appropriately classify them. One reason that imaging biomarkers and other biomarkers in Alzheimer's disease have become increasingly important is because of anti-amyloid therapies. And amyloid can be thought of as a theranostic target with amyloid being both a marker of people who might benefit from anti-amyloid therapy, but also as a way for following clearance of amyloid in the setting of treatment. And there's a number of agents that are in late phase trials shown here. You may be familiar with aducanumab, which received conditional approval in June 2021 uh, for mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. There are a number of other agents in late phase trials, and we expect to have uh, results uh, in the near future. Kind of following the theranostic theme, uh, anti-amyloid agents have been followed with amyloid PET. So on the left, we see data from aducanumab looking at various brain regions and decreases in amyloid in the brain measured with PET uh, that shows a dose dependence uh, clearance of amyloid based on PET. Uh, similarly, on the right, we see data from denanumab, where in the patients receiving the drug, there's clearance of amyloid from the brain, uh, well, as we do not see much of a change in the placebo group. So right now, this is speculative. We'll have to see if this enters clinical practice, but there's the potential for monitoring response to therapy using amyloid PET. And here, quantification, uh, SUV ratios, and other measures will be important for following patients. The last topic I'd like to talk about in this section is multimodality imaging uh, in Alzheimer's disease with PET and MRI. Brain PET and MRI can be acquired simultaneously or separately infused. Simultaneous PET-MR does have the advantage, if it's available, to do a comprehensive neuroimaging exam in a single session, uh, which saves patients' trips and time. However, it is perfectly... Uh, it is perfectly feasible to fuse with software separately acquired PET and MRI. So what I'm saying here applies to simultaneous and separately acquired PET and MRI. Uh, MRI has some important key roles in the evaluation of early Alzheimer's disease. One is excluding other causes like stroke, tumor, hydrocephalus, etc. It's also important to use MR to uh, establish a baseline level of white matter disease and to determine if there's hemorrhage present 
prior to starting anti-amyloid therapies to look for amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, ARIA, such as ARIA-H for hemorrhage, ARIA-E for edema. Uh, and there's also the potential to use MR-based volumes to look for neurodegeneration, as well as to define PET regions for quantification. So let's go through a case. Here's a 64-year-old woman. She has hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and carotid stenosis. She prevents for the evaluation of mild uh, stage uh, dementia of unclear etiology. And in her initial presentation, she had language deficits predominantly. Um, she came with an outside MRI, which really was not very remarkable, except for some uh, T2 flare hyperintensities in the white matter, possible microvascular disease. Um, she did have a neuropsychological evaluation with prominent language deficits, but also visuospatial executive and fine motor skill deficits. And uh, based on the clinical assessment and the MRI, the major differential was uh, logopenic aphasia, a variant of Alzheimer's disease with Alzheimer's disease pathology, versus frontotemporal dementia. So in the age of anti-amyloid therapies, it becomes very important to distinguish these entities because you would treat it uh, very differently. So here's the patient's amyloid pet, and we're putting the cart before the horse a little bit as uh, Val Lowe will be going uh, in depth on amyloid. But this is a positive scan, loss of gray-white uh, contrast, and there's even some regions in the occipital cortex where there's higher uptake in the cortex than white matter. So it's a clearly positive study. She also, as part of this evaluation, had a volumetric MRI. And what I'd like to point out is the only region that was decreased is the temporal lobe, and this was actually on the left. So this fits with her language deficit. Um, additionally, the MR can be segmented, and this segmentation can be brought back to the MR and then applied to the PET for quantitation like SUV ratio uh, calculation. In this case, just like the visual assessment, her quantitative assessment was also abnormal. And while I think it's easy to see this as a positive case, if this patient were being monitored for therapy, it would likely be difficult visually to, to just say, based on looking at the images, whether there was clearance of uh, cortex uh, amyloid, whereas the quantification is a potential way to monitor. So this is an amyloid pedomer that supports the diagnosis of logopenic aphasia due to AD pathophysiology, positive both visually and quantitatively. And we have some MR evidence of neurodegeneration in the left temporal lobe. And when you go back and look at a coronal slice, it's easy to see that left temporal lobe has atrophy with sulcal widening. But this wasn't called prospectively. And some of these automatic volumetric quantifications can help assess the neurodegeneration part of the ATN classification. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Dr. Lowe to continue. Thanks, Jonathan. So we'll dig a little deeper into amyloid PET, but first I want to ask you guys, um, who of you, this is November, almost through November, who has read an amyloid PET and rendered a clinical impression during this entire year? One. Has anybody read one? One person back there? Anybody else being just a little bit hesitant? No? Okay. So... So, um, and that's what we're in right now, right? I mean, we don't do a lot of amyloid PET clinically, but I want to talk to everybody a little bit about how you would interpret them and kind of uh, tell you a little bit about some of the difficulties in interpreting, inter interpreting amyloid PET. So we have several amyloid PET binders, right? Uh, three are approved, fluorbetapyr, flutometamol, and fluorbetaben. And... Um, so we're hoping then that we can use these tests to help people with therapy and identify people who need therapy. 
Just a little background, amyloid accumulates in the gray matter, the gray cortical area, gray matter ribbon of the brain. It doesn't really accumulate, for the most part, in white matter. And so we use that distinction in, ter- in interpreting visually amyloid PET scans, and I'll talk about that in a second. So we can do things a number of ways. Obviously, we can use visual and, uh, interpretation, but we can also use SUVRs, which we're all very familiar with. And this is a study that looked at just visual reads and uh, gave us um, uh, some ways to ad- identify positives and negatives. In this, in this um, uh, paper, um, they described a scoring method where they said there was no binding, uh, minimal binding or minor binding and pronounced binding for eight brain regions. This is, was done for fluorobetaben. And um, you categorize the scores to a, sp- a score of two as positive. And they had focal you know, regions that they defined as the regions that you're going to look at and score, frontal cortex, posterior cingulate, lateral temporal cortex, and parietal cortex. And the results of this study showed that the sensitivity, this is as compared to autopsy, for a positive scan was 80%, and the specificity 91%. So the first message that we need to take home is that it's not perfect relative to pathology. Of course, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, people have pathology done a few years after the scan may be done, and in this particular one, they tried to get it very early, six months to a year before the neuro, uh, neuropathology was done, but it's impossible to have it typically the day or two before, and there could be some development in between. The other thing we can do is use quantitative assessment, like we do in a lot of things, is measure the ROI, and we can get it segmented by MRI or by standard uh, segmental anatomy maps. We can compare that to MRI or we can compare it to FTG or use a standard map. Um, then we normalize that to some, uh, some region that we think doesn't accumulate the amyloid tracer, and that can be cerebellum or it can be some combination with supertentorial white matter. Come up with a ratio, and there you have SUPR. Now, um, depending on the method you use, these can vary a little bit, 30%. So people have come up with what's called the centeloid method, where it's a way of normalizing an institution's data to a standard data set of PIBs so that everybody can be speaking the same language in a range from 0 to 100 and hopefully normalize the quantitative results that people have. And this is helpful more for, say, for example, research studies when you have different institutions or if you want to be able to compare your data with other institutions or published data. Now, if you use the SUVR method and visual methods, you seem to do a little bit better. If we look at this paper by, by Mike Parnikorvo, um, it showed that those who were not as experienced with reading PET had a bigger advantage. They changed, for example, on day one, which was visual only, to day two, which was visual plus, plus quant, would change, you know, five, six percent, um, you know, some up to 12 percent, depending upon the method used and data you're looking at. But overall, people changed significantly uh, a little bit based on whether they added quantitation to their interpretation. So how do we, in, ba- in the basic way, how, what's the basic way of calling a positive PET scan? I'm showing here, showing here people who are not impaired, people who are impaired, and uh, positive and negative scans for both. So what we want to look at is this contrast between, non, between white matter, which has, as I mentioned, no real amyloid, but has non-specific uptake, um, but we see in pretty much everybody, um, and, and, and the activity we see in gray matter, which is on the bottom, where it shows up as more confluent activity from the ventricles right out to the gray matter ribbon. So that's a positive. So the difference is sort of the spider-like uh, white matter uptake versus the confluent activity throughout the brain. Now, there are people who are not impaired, as, as uh, John mentioned, uh, that have high uptake, 
And uh, there's people who have MCI who also have high uptake. So that's something we need to keep in mind, that it isn't alone a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, but it is a diagnosis of, of amyloid in some sense. Now, because this is um, kind of the, the way we define things and the we, way we always say that, well, this is how is it, what's a positive and a negative, it doesn't mean that's what you're going to see in practice, right? As we see with pretty much every other new modality we see, we tar- start to see the gray zones. So I'm just going to show you a bunch of gray zones in this slide. Um, and the first column are not impaired, that we have impaired, and the ones on the right, you can just guess for a minute and tell me whether they're impaired or not. But this top left... Uh, scan is somebody who's not impaired. And you can see the white matter very clearly. You can see a separation. Uh, the SUVR, however, is slightly elevated. This is somebody who's cognitively unimpaired. They have a thalus phase one at neuropathology. They do not have any diffuse plaques. So in this sense, there's really nothing there to call positive, even though, even though the quantitation is positive. So it's a bit of a false positive because of the intensity of the white matter. The next one down is a positive SCVR as well. Visually, where the arrow is, you can see there's a loss of the white gray matter distinction, and it's asymmetric. So when early amyloid accumulates, it's not uncommon to see focal areas asymmetrically showing accumulation. This is a thal one but had um, sparse diffuse plaques and was a part case, primary age uh, related to telopathy. The impaired group, just again to show you a little contrast, the SCVR on this particular person was actually negative. Um, it's a thal 3 has um, moderate diffuse plaques and sparse neuritic plaques. So the neuritic plaques are kind of the bad ones. The, sparse, the diffuse ones are more sort of, if you will, thought to be co-pathology, maybe incidental, pla- uh, amyloid, that sort of thing. And this was uh, neuropathologically a transitional Lewy body dementia. But visually, no contrast and so a positive scan. This is another patient who had uh, negative SUVR, but you can see the asymmetry here as well. So you, you see the loss of the, um, of the distinction on the right side. Let me just use my pointer here. I didn't put an arrow on, but right along here, you don't see much distinction. Where on the left side, you do, and right out to the edge, you don't see signal. So a negative visual scan, thal 3 with some diffuse plaque, and this is an FTLD TDPopathy case pathologically. So some copathology with diffuse plaque um, showing up on your scan visually, but not indicating Alzheimer's disease. All right, anybody have answers for the questions in the far right? A very positive scan. What is this? Well, it turns out to be this is an amnestic MCI who has pathology at neuropathology of transitional Lewy body dementia, so not an Alzheimer's disease case, but has um, diffuse plaque, diffuse plaque in moderate degree, which is very common for our people with Lewy body disease, and so an, another indication of copathology. The case on the bottom, positive scan, uh, frequent diffuse plaques, and this person was categorized as senile, senile change, which is a BRAC3 but only diffuse amyloid. So again, a positive scan in somebody who has very early uh, developing Alzheimer's type pathology. 
Um, I'm only going to look at the one in the bottom, or show, describe the one in the bottom. This is the three cases that we just saw, but we also have value, and you'll see value in looking at correlative imaging, as John mentioned earlier, uh, the case on the bottom with amnestic MCI, which was a bit of a quandary that basically showed up on neuropath that have Lewy body disease. The FDG is a big help here because on the FDG on the bottom here, you can see that the occipital lobe is hypometabolic, helping us identify this person as a Lewy body dementia rather than being something traversing down the AD pathway. So there have been appropriate use criteria developed for PET. I think maybe, maybe some of you have seen this. Um, this was one of papers Jonathan was on, published in 2013, said that we don't want to use this for everybody. We don't want to use amyloid PET when it gets approved for the worried well. We want to use it for people who have unexplained MCI and questionable cases, if you will, not really people who are just looking for an answer, even though we really have a good answer for them. The IDEAS study, which maybe many of you have uh, heard about, was a, was a large trial of 18,000 people to try to identify the management benefits of using amyloid PET. Three were used, and um, the aims were to look at the impact of a patient in three months and the impact on major outcomes in 12 months in this group of people by using amyloid PET and looking pre and post the amyloid PET of what changes occurred. And this is just an example of many of the things that they describe, but the change in AD drug use is on the Y scale, and we have the different kinds of clinical situations here on the X scale here. So we see that there's a lot of change in drug management that occurs when people are positive, less so when they're negative. Uh, some other data, in, in dementia patients, 70% were amyloid positive in MCI patients, 55. Um, so I think the, the point here being that a lot of treatment changes happened when an amyloid scan was in hand, and, and I think that's uh, what the idea is, the thrust of the IDEAS trial, what it was trying to prove. So their conclusions was, were, were that uh, management changed in a high proportion of patients, um, similar rates occurred whether you were MCI or Alzheimer's disease, and um, the use of medications was affected. We also see that PET led to an increase in AD diagnosis and, dr and drug use, that's therapeutic drug use, in patients with amyloid, and a decrease in AD di diagnosis uh, led to less so. Now there's a new idea studies that's rolling, and this has the goal of enrolling um, really a more ethno-racially and clinically diverse group than was included in the first set, with similar aims in the whole trial though. One other question I just wanted to get to before we move on to Jonathan is that um, uh, amyloid PET tracers may be different, and uh, there's slight differences. I think what people have shown, and most of the research that's been done so far, is that the cortical ribbon uptake is very similar between the tracers, but the white matter uptake can differ. And so that can make a lot of differences in your quantitation if you're trying to compare apples to apples and you have different tracers, your, your, your regions may need to change. Just one example of something we showed a number of years ago uh, was that in between, that between flutametamol and PIB, um, you can see significant differences in the white matter. If you glance down to this bottom row, here we have young, cognitively normal people, and we compare how much greater flutamenomol accumulates than PIB, you can see all of this white matter signal showing increased flutamenomol white matter signal compared to those who have, compared to the PIB. And each person had, this, had both scans. And in the elderly controls, the same thing is true. But in terms of gray matter, you can't tell much of a difference. And there certainly is no greater uptake in PIB, for example, than there is in flutamenomol. And these are essentially very similar mo molecules uh, as well, but one is carbon, one's fluoride. So um, 
just an example of a case. Um, this is a person who has heart disease, no cognitive impairment for age, and is participating in the Mayo Clinic study of aging, which is a dementia research study. Uh, these these uh, uh, tests were ordered. An MRI was uh, ordered and showed uh, unchanged intracranial volume loss, unchanged over the prior, and some uh, chronic lacunar infarcts in the right cerebellar hemisphere. MMSE of 30. And, and the CSF, and we're going to get to fluid biomarkers in a little bit, but CSF P tau over A beta 42, which is thought to be sort of the, the goalpost, if you will, for um, CSF markers, was 0 0.014 which is less than the normal range of 0 0.023. So a PIB scan on this patient would look like this. A tau scan looked like this. A lot of muscle activity here in this tau scan, normal finding here. Nothing in the medial temporal lobes. So summary on this um, case is that this is an amyloid positive, tau negative, PET evaluated patient. The MRI is not really a neurodegenerative issue. Cognitively unimpaired, A plus, sorry, cognitively unimpaired, A plus, T minus, N minus, with a false negative CSF, being that the ratio is 0.014. So I'm just showing some cases to see, and I'll get to later, that you know, some of the fluid biomarkers aren't perfect either. Um, and now we'll move on to uh, more about tau from Dr. McCarthy. Thank you. So... In this section, we're going to talk about tau, obviously, and in addition to diagnostic roles, there may be more of a prognostic role for tau biomarkers uh, compared to amyloid. So an important concept in tau is that although amyloid can have focal areas of cortically increased uptake, tau stereotypically spreads from the medial temporal lobe uh, out into other cortical regions. Uh, so starting kind of an early stage uh, it's isolated to transinterrhinal regions, uh, and these can be stage one and two, a Brock stage can be clumped in kind of this B1 uh, classification. Um, and older adults may have transinterrhinal tau, and the, the significance is not entirely clear. But once tau starts spreading uh, to the limbic regions, this is clearly pathological, and the tau is shown here as this brown uh, cortical regions from immunohistochemistry. Uh, and this, as this spreads, uh, eventually it reaches the neocortical regions, which is late-stage tau. Um, and so there is more of a uh, stereotypic spatial distribution of tau pathology in Alzheimer's disease compared to, Alzheimer, uh, compared to amyloid. So there are a number of, uh, of tau tracers that are in human use. The only one that's currently approved by the FDA is flortausapir. Um, and that may change for some of the other tracers, but I'm going to focus on flortausapir in the clinical setting. So this is from the uh, pivotal trials for approval of flortausapir by the FDA for imaging tau in the brain. And what's really important to, to know is that the performance of flortausapir is good for B3, but one of the limitations of this agent is it doesn't perform as well if you're looking at more limited stage B2 pathology. So you can have... Uh, pathological tau deposition in regions uh, associated with Alzheimer's disease that you may not detect if it's at earlier stage. But if we focus on this late-stage neocortical tau deposition, you can see that across five readers, this sensitivity was very good in the 90s, uh, one, one person uh, performing perfectly, although at the expense of being about 50% specific, uh, whereas many of the other readers did better. But there's some variability, like with any diagnostic imaging agent, and so 
for amyloid and for tau, make sure you've done the appropriate training for the tracer you're using because there are obviously reader-dependent uh, uh, variations and knowing the criteria and, and applying them to cases before in practice before uh, clinical use is, is very important. Um, in terms of interpreting uh, TAUPAD, tau I'm not trying to teach you how to do this fully, but I want to go over some of the key criteria. So it's really you're evaluating uptake in the neocortex. Uh, you will see with flortalsapir off-target binding in the choriplexus, the striatum, and brainstem nuclei in some patients. And some of the non-off-target uh, and non-specific binding properties vary between the, the tau tracers. So in terms of a positive scan, you need to see increased neocortical activity in the posterolateral temporal cortex, the occipital cortex, or parietal precuneus um, in either hemisphere. Uh, and when you see a positive scan, this means there is relatively late stage tau pathology with neocortical involvement. Negative scan, easy if there's not increased neocortical activity, but in a clinical context, a negative scan also could have uh, isolated increased neocortical activity in the mesial temporal, anterolateral temporal, and or frontal cortex. Now, I think there's something there to be learned, uh, and in research, these can be important findings, but from a clinical point of view, these are still read as, as negative. Um, a little bit different than uh, the way uh, at least some of the amyloid PET tracers are read. Here, a reference region is used uh, to develop a ratio. And again, if you're using this clinically, you, you need to go through the training and, and become familiar. But one of the key things is you want to use a color scale where there's a rapid transition between clearly distinct colors at between 25 to 60% of the maximum pixel value or voxel value in the brain. And so if you use an upper contrast value, uh, you then want to uh, set the threshold such that 1.65 is of the mean cerebellar counts uh, is your transition point. So in this case, the transition point's at 25% of the upper contrast value. And if you're at 1.65 or higher above the, the mean cerebellar counts, you're gonna see transition from a grayscale to color scale. There's some other color scales uh, that you can use. I, I like this one because you go from grayscale if you're below the threshold based on the cerebellar reference region to color if you're above that threshold. So what does this look like? So you can see a two-dimensional ROI drawn over the cerebellum, which is used then to define the scale. If we look at grayscale, I think you can see there's no increased cortical, neocortical activity in this patient. If we look at the color scale, we don't see any neocortical activity that's above the threshold. So this would be a negative scan, but we do see some of the off-target uh, uh, uptake. We can see this in the choroid plexus, we can see this in the striatum, and we can see this here in the clivus, which is bone marrow, and this is likely orbital marrow as well. And you may see uh, marrow activity with various tracers, including some of the amyloid tracers. But this is a negative scan because there's not increased activity in the neocortical regions um, that we talked about earlier. In contrast, here's a clearly positive study. Even on the grayscale, you can see that there's regionally increased activity in the temporal lobe, extending into the occipital cortex, and extending into the parietal cortex as well. And when you use the color scale, you can, the things in color are above that at least 1.65-fold higher than this cerebellar reference region. This shows the same thing as the uh, uh, grayscale, with increased activity in the temporal cortex, occipital cortex, and parietal cortices. 
So here's a clearly positive study. So what does a positive tau scan mean? Well, as with amyloid, we're really looking at a biomarker for an abnormal protein deposition. Uh, so we're not diagnosing Alzheimer's disease or other uh, conditions with TAUPET alone. It is important to know that TAUPET has a stronger correlation with neuronal injury and cognitive impairment than amyloid pathology. I'll show you some data in a moment. So a positive TAUPET scan has more prognostic value, at least in the near term, than a positive amyloid scan alone. It's also important to understand that flortalsapir and many of the other uh, tau ligands that are in human use really bind only well to the amyloid form, uh, sorry, the Alzheimer's disease form of tau that's deposited. There are other physical forms of tau. And so flortalsapir works well in AD, but there are other tauopathies that are not well imaged with flortalsapir. And there's a lot of work in this area, and this may change in the future. Um, and as before, as with amyloid, just seeing AD pathophysiology does not tell you about a patient's cognitive status at the time of the scan, although there is a prognostic value with tau. Um, you know, so when I think about how tau might be used clinically, you know, it does support the diagnosis of AD, particularly in the setting of cognitive impairment. Um, it is important to realize that a negative tau PET doesn't exclude the presence of tau pathology, particularly at those earlier stages where there's not as much neocortical spread. Um, and we don't diagnose based on tau PET or amyloid PET alone. They're not formal society guidelines yet, but here's a proposed guideline for clinical tau PET, similar to what we uh, heard for amyloid PET. And this really should be reserved for patients with cognitive impairment of an uncertain cause who's been evaluated by an expert uh, in clinical dementia evaluation. There shouldn't be a definitive diagnosis of AD. Uh, there should be a reason for distinguishing AD from other neurodegenerative diseases. And again, in, in the era of potential disease-modifying therapies, this becomes increasingly important. Uh, and there's also the potential to use TAUPET to uh, assess the severity of tau deposition. This is outside the FDA label for this agent, but there is emerging data that the extent of tau abnormality uh, may have prognostic value. And again, I'll show you some data in a moment. So here's a clinical case. A 76-year-old woman who's had the gradual onset of cognitive impairment, which is now moderate in severity. And you can see over about a decade, she started with a mini mental status exam of 30 out of 30, which has declined rather steadily uh, over the past approximately decade. She's clearly amyloid positive. We lose gray-white contrast throughout the cortex of the cerebrum. And she's also clearly tau positive. We can see increased activity in the parietal cortex and in the temporal lobes. So she's amyloid positive and tau positive based on PET. Um, additionally, she had MRI uh, performed. And you can see that the hippocampal volumes are greatly reduced compared to age and sex match controls. And in fact, the decline over time is greater than one would expect compared to age and sex match controls. So she started off. Uh, with small hippocampi when she was first evaluated, and these have continued to decrease more rapidly than expected. So she's A, T, and N positive based on imaging. Main point, this is a, a good example of a positive A, T, N case. And knowing her cognitive status is critical to saying that she has dementia, but all of this goes together with um, symptomatic AD with concordant bio imaging biomarkers. 
Um, this is just to remind you again of the time course. So as we talked about, tau pet and tau CSF are more closely temporally associated with cognitive impairment than amyloid, which can, again, proceed by uh, any cognitive changes that are uh, subjectively or objectively measurable by uh, years. So this is a, a nice study recently published in Nature Medicine looking at uh, patients or I should say uh, individuals based on their ATN status. So uh, this is progression to MCI, the risk over time of progression to MCI, looking at a six-year uh, time course. You can see that the uh, amyloid and tau negative had very little conversion to MCI, although there's a little bit. You can also see that the amyloid positive tau negative group did have a greater risk of progression to MCI, but still not very high, and that's what you would expect because many of these patients uh, you know, th these patients don't have uh, tau pathology. If you look at those who are amyloid uh, positive and tau positive only in the medial temporal lobe, they are at much greater risk of progression to MCI. But those with highest risk for progression to MCI were those that were amyloid positive and tau positive in the neocortex uh, who had the worst um, six-year time, uh, uh, six progression. They had the uh, most frequent progression MCI over six years. If you look at progression to all-cause dementia, you can see that really only the amyloid positive and the tau positive in the neocortex progress to dementia over six years. And so, again, the, the localization and amount of tau uh, can be important, with the medial temporal lobes not alone not being particularly predictive, although there is some increased uh, conversion. Um, if you look at patients who are amyloid positive and tau positive, those with advanced flortalsipir pet abnormalities, meaning uh, neocortical regions outside of just the posterior, uh, posterior lateral temporal cortex or occipital cortex, meaning frontal or parietal uh, tau deposition, had uh, faster, uh, uh, faster rates of cognitive impairment worsening based on uh, clinical dementia rating as well as MMSE. So tau positivity alone does, there, you can further stratify within that based on the location of the tau. Again, not currently part of the clinical interpretation criteria, but likely to be important uh, in the future. 87-year-old man who presented with subtle memory changes beginning at 77 years. These are actually reported by his spouse. Um, his mini mental status examination was 30 out of 30, but he had been started on an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. Um, you can see, unlike the patient I showed uh, previously, his mini-mental status examination was essentially stable. Uh, he was amyloid positive on imaging, so we, we'd still see a little bit of gray-white contrast, but there's clearly loss in some brain regions, and it's uh, even in this uh, temporal occipital region, there's more amyloid than there should be based on the comparison in the cerebellum. Uh, the patient was tau negative. I'm not going to show it, but their MRI volumes were within normal limits. One could say, you know, maybe expected aging I, I, I get it that a lot of people become amyloid positive, but I would consider it pathological. So I, I think the best answer is preclinical Alzheimer's pathologic change. Uh, it is true that over the age of 85, approximately 50% of people will be amyloid positive. So it does occur with age, but I wouldn't consider it a part of normal aging. But because we know the patient's tau status and their, at least through MRI, neurodegeneration status, there's a good chance that this uh, patient won't experience Alzheimer's disease, dementia in their lifetime unless they live a lot longer. And they might develop dementia for other reasons, 
Uh, but it is reassuring that the other biomarkers other than amyloid are negative. Uh, just the last thing to mention is Talpet is starting to be incorporated in clinical trials for anti-amyloid therapies. And so, for example, uh, in, in this trial, uh, patients who have amyloid positive and have early symptomatic AD are excluded from therapy if they have low or no tau burden, whereas those who have intermediate and high tau burden are then stratified based on, on tau. We'll see how this turns out, but this may be an important way to identify patients who are most likely to benefit from anti-amyloid therapies. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Lowe for uh, the final part of our presentation. Thanks, Jonathan. So we'll move on to the final part, which is talking about emerging fluid biomarkers. And as a disclosure, I am not a fluid biomarker expert, but I'm playing one for this symposium, just so you know. So um, I do have a consultant that works with me, Michelle Melke, who is a world expert. She shared a number of the slides with me, and, and talk, we've talked about this frequently. So hopefully I can share some of her opinion as well as some of mine. Um, so CSF and blood fluid biomarkers are essentially breakdown parts of the neuron, some of which are related to Alzheimer's disease and some of which are nonspecific, such as total tau. Total tau, uh, sorry, uh, um, total tau is, is essentially something that can be seen with infarctions or other things, nonspecific neurodegenerative change. <clears throat> so we have to be careful about how other things going on may affect the results that we see. Um, so what are the pros and cons of the modalities we're talking about today? We've got amyloid pet, tau pet on the top, then we have CSF and plasma, plasma A beta 42 over 40. So um, some of the pros, of course, with imaging is that uh, it has a long history. It's essentially considered our gold standard. It hasn't been compared with a gold standard like pathology. Um, it uh, does uh, administer some radiation. It can be somewhat costly as it's not a, you know, approved by Medicare at this point in time with pretty reasonably high sensitivity and specificity. CSF, A-beta 42 and 40, and also tau, um, are reimbursed by CMS. Um, there's a long history and standardization of CSF values. Although uh, a lumbar puncture is invasive, it has possible con complications. There are some contraindications. And um, the, some of the testing methods vary. But the sensitivity and specificity are also very high. And when we talk about that for the fluid biomarkers, we're talking about their comparison with PET for the most part, not with neuropath. And that's, I think, the point we need to get to for many of the tests. Um, for plasma, um, it's a little bit different in that nothing is paid for by CMS. There are available tests clinically uh, for private use and can be paid for privately. Um, the difficulty is that the test performance can vary by assay. There's a lot of validation that needs to be done although the data that's out there shows that the sensitivity and specificity are respectable compared to amyloid PET. So I'm just going to focus on a couple of items. We don't have time to go through a lot of this, but CSF um, uh, fluid that's thought to be, the fluid test that's thought to be probably the best is actually a ratio of the P-tau or even T-tau over A-beta 42. These charts on the left are individual fluid biomarkers, A-beta 42, T-tau, and P-tau. And you can see that the row values are somewhat lowish, 48, 43, 53. But if you combine the tau with a ratio with A-beta 42, you get much better performance. So at the moment, that's thought to be the primary, the best way of looking at amyloid. In fact, amyloid PET, even though you've got a tau marker in there, of looking at amyloid PET correlation. Um, 
So here's a chart that actually kind of spells that out. This was published uh, recently and shows uh, the positive comparisons and overall comparisons with amyloid PET. And this shows T-tau and P-tau. And both of them have pretty respectable performance uh, compared to amyloid PET. Most people I get, uh, as I mentioned, have the feeling that the P-tau is going to be a little more specific, and that's been shown in other papers. So that uh, shows performance of both of them, but uh, people tend to favor the P-tau over T-tau uh, in the ratio. Clinical case, this person has a decline in cognition, suspected AD based on a clinical neurologic exam. And CSF uh, AD testing was ordered, and we also have multimodality imaging ordered as part of a research trial. This is the actual printout from the patient's report uh, of records and shows the P-tau over A-beta-42 ratio of 0.022. The cutoff is 0.023, so this is a negative finding for Alzheimer's disease evaluation. Now, if you look at the, if you look at the individual biomarkers in this CSF, the A-beta-42 is slightly below normal at 913, so that comes up as a red there, and the T-tau is within the normal range. So based on the CSF data, we need to think about what would we call this patient if we just had the CSF. It might be similar thought to what uh, case Jonathan just showed us, where it's maybe just an amyloid positive. Um, but if you use the ratio as your sole diagnostic marker, which is thought to be miraculous, you might say patients really got no amyloid or tau pathology. So these are the imaging uh, correlates, and we've got here the patient's MRI showing hippocampal volume loss. We got the FDG PET showing temporal, parietal hypometabolism, as well as posterior cingulate, precuneous hypometabolism, which are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease, hallmark hypometabolic regions of Alzheimer's. Here we have tau PET on the left, shows temporal, medial temporal, as well as posterior temporal occipital and posterior cingulate tau signal, and an amyloid PET showing confluent tau right up the gray matter ribbon. So now, based on tau, PET, and amyloid PET, as well as your CSF data, what would be your most likely diagnosis? So in this case, we're really looking at a false negative CSF in a patient who has a clearly amyloid positive, clearly tau positive scan, hippocampal atrophy, is really an A plus, T plus, N plus, Alzheimer's disease, pathology with Alzheimer's disease, dementia. So I'm showing these cases because a lot of times we're hearing right now CSF and plasma are the way to go. It's going to be the best thing since sliced bread. What I'm trying to show you is that it's not exactly what happens in clinical practice, and hopefully I can show exactly a, few things, a few reasons why. So if we get to plasma, this is the A-beta 42 or 40 ratio, which does separate Alzheimer's disease from, uh, sorry, A-pluses from A-minuses in a couple of references here. The problem we run into with plasma is something that happens in this range, that there's substantial intergroup overlap. And if you have a patient that sits in, in here and is a positive, a negative, or here, and here is a positive, if that individual patient came to you and had this result, what would you say? Are they amyloid positive or amyloid negative? And I'll give you the reason for why this probably happens in a second. Um, but the data shows that low A beta 42 or 40 ratio is associated with cognitive decline. It is associated with it. And the risk of, and, and risk of AD among people who are unimpaired or in MCI stage. But um, we also know that other things ha are going on. The half-life of A-beta isoforms in human plasma are really three hours. So the body breaks down amyloid as quickly as it can. In the CSF, the half-life is nine hours. And also, when you take a sample of plasma, um, 
Brain A-beta only accounts for about 30 to 50% of the A-beta in the blood because your body produces A-beta as well. So there you have a situation where whatever the brain is doing is also mixed with what else is going on. Um, so in normal participants, there's also a blood amyloid diurnal pattern where the amyloid peaks at about 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. and then hits a trough about 12 hours later. As people become amyloid positive, they lose that variation. So when you're comparing negatives and positives, you're also losing the bias or imputing a bias, if you will, that occurs with the diurnal variations. Um, so part of what we have happen then is the difference between those with and without amyloid in plasma is about 20%, that, that sort of squishing, if you will, of the medians. In CSF, it's about 50%, so that difference then makes it much harder to separate those groups between positives and negatives. The other thing that we see is that there's relatively poor correlation across methods if, uh, publications about how accurate people are and what the cutoffs are going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's A-beta. Uh, plasma P-tau and T-tau um, are out there. Now, the thing that you need to remember, too, is that there's many different isoforms. There's about 50 different isoforms of tau that people could potentially measure. We've got data on a few of them, 181. Uh, 231, 217 are some good examples. The 181 is pictured here showing different uh, Brock stage groups and the differences in the uh, P-tau measurements being uh, significant differences. And in this, you see an association with MK6240, a tau agent, enterinal tau, uh, with the plasma P-tau uh, 231. The row value, again, still is, is not what we'd love to see at 0.52, and you can see some of the scatter around here which makes it somewhat challenging to know what you do sometimes with an individual patient. So why do these things happen with, with uh, plasma blood tests? I, I worked with a colleague when I went to Mayo who had been doing plasma testing for about 10 years, and he retired 15 years after that, still working on plasma testing. So this is it's not a new uh, thought process to go through um, uh, for identifying disease uh, from AD, but it is challenging. One thing to keep in mind is that with uh, this study that Michelle published um, in plasma p uh, 181, you can see an effect by comorbidities. So if somebody has, in the, in, in the control group, if somebody has diabetes or hypertension or atrial fibrillation or myocardial infarction or uses NSAIDs or has statin use or um, is in treatment for diabetes, all of these, if you have the condition, you're going to have a higher p -tau than if you don't, a significant difference. The same thing, but to a milder extent, happens in mild cognitive impairment. So this leads to the fact that what we really need to do for these tests is actually look at them in a large population sample, not just in AD samples, and look at people who have all these comorbidities to see how the tests perform in the population. So work is being done to try to improve what we can with uh, plasma, AB, uh, plasma uh, tau markers. This is a chart that shows Z-scores in people um, uh, who have um, more pathology as we go along here in centeloids by PET or by CSF, uh, CSF biomarkers. And you can see how plasma uh, uh, P-tau 231 seems to have a better Z-score and a lot tighter, uh, a lot bigger separation between positives and negatives than we might see in, say, for example, PTAL-181. So that brings us to the end. Uh, our take-home points, I think that we'd like to make sure you, uh, you know, hang up in the, 
and on your mirror and study them are that amyloid and tau PET and fluid biomarkers can detect presymptomatic AD and stage MCI and dementia due to AD. Plasma biomarkers, we think, need more validation and improvement from their current status. We'd hope that they become something that could help separate people who have the diagnosis and aid us in treatment of AD when that becomes uh, available. The advent of FDA-approved disease-modifying therapies for AD will likely change the landscape of neuroimaging for AD. If these um, uh, uh, therapies get approved, we think it's going to be essential to have the imaging on board as well. Amyloid and TALPAT may be key for identifying these people for AD therapies and also monitoring the response. Uh, thanks for your attention. And I think we have, how much time do we have left for questions? A couple minutes? Okay. Great. Uh, well, with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and open up the floor for any questions. Can a patient be AD minus or time minus and still be AD? AD minus and TAL minus? A, A, A minus. A minus? And T minus. Okay. And or T minus. And st still be the AD? Theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, know. I think, This is a very, very yeah. tricky question. I, I apologize for that. But no, it's totally fine. <laughs> I think the thing is our tests aren't perfect, right? And we could be missing something. I mean, even to the realm of something where your tracer's not working well. But I think uh, we have to always accept the, the option or the, uh, the possibility. Uh, I mean, that it could be a negative scan for some reason. I think the likelihood is extremely low. Uh, I, I see somebody over here? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you referred a number of times to PIB, the Pittsburgh Imaging Agent. Have you, and I may have been buried in the data, but how do your sensitivity and sort of specificity curves in analyzing these data in the context of the clinical background change if you're using PIB versus one of the uh, F-18-based agents where... Mm -hmm. Uh, you're, you're saying, and the F-18 agents, it looks like what you're doing is going from contrast to non-contrast in mm -hmm. terms of cortex versus subcortical white matter, mm -hmm. given that the F-18 agents seem to bind to a greater degree to the white matter. If you just had the cortical ribbon, didn't have the white matter against which to judge it, and uh, then you had to make, or maybe you have made a judgment on the basis of uptake in cortex, how has that, have you done that, and how has that kind sure. of changed how you uh, mm -hmm. evaluate the patients and assign either risk or actual disease? Right. Good question. Yeah, so relative to just uh, scoring the cortex, if you eliminate white matter, for example. So the trick to that is to look at the gray matter in the cerebellum and use that as your reference. So sometimes if we don't have very much white matter uptake in a PIB scan, and that does happen, I mean, like you said, the F-18 compounds do, compounds do have more white matter uptake that's not specific. You certainly see it in PIB. It's less intense. And in younger people, we have people that don't show any white matter uptake in PIB when they're young, 30 years old, right, 40 years old. So it happens with age. Um, and so um, we use the cortical ROIs and compare that to what we see in the gray matter cerebellum. Uh, do you see a relationship with um, uh, tau-PET and these vascular risk factors that you were talking about? You said that plasma tau is higher in patients that have, um, you know, statins, NSAID use, and all these other vascular risk factors. Because I, I would think there would be some sort of overlap between vascular dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, so what would you think? This, would you see, um, you know, tau-PET 
Uh, higher tau pet signal in this population as well. Tau pet? Give me an easy one. You right. can do the tau pet. I'll, yeah, do, no, I'll, I'll do the easy. fluid. Yeah, so I think, you know, I don't think that of them as, you know, related in terms of causation, you know, that the tau is being caused by the vascular disease. It's quite clear that, you know, vascular disease burden has uh, an effect on cognition. And you actually, if you're doing studies and trying to understand etiologies, you need to correct for it. Uh, so, you know, someone who is tau positive and has a lot, a big burden of vascular disease in the brain is probably going to be more impaired on average. I don't know if, you know, barring strokes, I don't know if there's a great way to, in the clinical setting, to bring that down to an individual patient level. But I would think someone who, two patients who are otherwise the same, one has vascular disease burden, one doesn't, one is tau, both are tau positive. The one with the vascular disease burden, I would expect to either at the time of imaging and over time to have worse uh, cognitive performance. I don't know if that's answering your question exactly. I'm not aware of a, a true causal link, though, between vascular disease and, and tau deposition measured with PET. Two, two comments and follow-up is that um, those differences are something we don't understand yet. So they could be anything from poor elimination. You've got somebody who's got some disease and they don't eliminate as fast. Renal dysfunction. They're not clearing them. So it doesn't have to mean that the elevation that we're seeing is anything to do with brain pathology. It could be just what people tend to forget is that, you know, that plasma tau goes through a whole systemic circulation, right? It's being modified. It's being broken down at different rates for different people. So that's the challenge is how do we normalize this for everybody when you're talking about a tracer, when you're talking about a protein that's quickly degraded, degraded differently in different people, and may not have anything to do with AD, let alone the fact that, you know, T-tau and neurofilament light and these other things are more related to generalized neural uh, generation, not so much AD. So then you've got those things playing into it that it could be a hypertensive effect, neuronal loss, but nothing to do with AD. So your scan probably doesn't change, but you've got other things playing into other comorbidities in the brain and also comorbidities systemically. Um, thank you for your presentation. So in AI research, there are several attempts to develop to predict like amyloid beta positivity from solely from brain MRI. And actually, I'm quite doubtful, doubtful for such approach, but I'd like to know your thoughts regarding to the credibility or feasibility of such methods. Go for it. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm persuadable by data, but I'm a bit skeptical. And I think especially if you're talking about people early on, um, I do think later on volume loss could be predictive of amyloid status. I think it's possible. I, I'm half joking. I also think like a patient's head position in the scanner may, may predict you know, their cognitive status, mo motion during the scan. So I think there may be things that can be teased out. But uh, you know, as a primarily nuclear medicine person, I'm going to you know, give the edge to PET uh, and other biomarkers. There may be something there. And again, I'm persuadable by data. But I think early on, especially pre-symptomatic and early symptomatic, I think it's going to be very challenging to be accurate. We had a comment online basically said APOE may play a role also. We haven't said anything about genetics here, and I think everybody needs to understand there's a whole field of genetics that plays into whether things are more positive, and in terms of an AI approach, you build in something like AI, you build in something like genetics, I mean, if you build an APOE and age and a few things, you can get almost the same likelihood of positivity as you can with a scan. So there's a lot of potential for kind of melding a lot of data that's out there. And uh, 
The problem is that when you treat somebody, you need to have a measurable target, and I think that's where imaging comes into play, is you'd like to have something you can actually track to see if it gets better. And I'll tell you, we have people who have been on antibodies, gone negative, and then have gone positive again on amyloid imaging, right? So this is not something that's just going to be a scan and you're done. What we understand is that you're, you're not taking away the source of the amyloid by giving somebody an antibody. They still produce. So a few years down the road, they're going to become positive again. Who's going to, who's going to monitor that? So I think there's a number of reasons to think about something like imaging and not just their, their risk scores will be the same. All of their genetic information will be identical. It's not going to help you. But if you have a scan that monitors things, you're going to be able to do that. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UHK 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.